0: You're listening to the Mix It Up podcast, a podcast dedicated to celebrating LGBTQ plus creatives of the global majority who work across arts, culture, and entertainment. Hosted by Joey Reyes. Get ready to mix it up. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mix It Up podcast. I'm your host, Joey Reyes, and we are here for episode four. This is going by so quickly, and it is... Very much been a labor of love. I am thrilled for today's guest, one of my best friends that I've made over the last few years, Brian Joseph Lee. And I'm so excited for you to hear what he has to say. We had a wonderful conversation, and Brian's just one of those people that I Every time I have a conversation with them, it ends up getting pretty deep, pretty fast. You know, as folks who are very passionate about the work that we do and, you know, what we wish to see for the future of our industry, we oftentimes are sort of ideating and quite honestly manifesting together. So I'm very thrilled for you to to hear from him and learn more about all of the amazing, incredible things that he is doing in his line of work. But before we get into that, I do want to express I, I do want to have like a very personal moment because this particular week has been a little emotional for me. I have had a couple experiences, actually in the last few days that have left me feeling a little discouraged, a little frustrated and honestly kind of insulted too. Feeling sort of at this at this point, feeling very I've been made to feel very insecure about my experience and my abilities. As a storyteller, as a producer, as an artist, as someone who has invested so much of their time building relationships and and bridging the gaps for folks across the country. And at the same time, it's sort of these these feelings have also reiterated and have sort of galvanized this other feeling in me that a space like this, like this podcast is exactly what I need to be doing as I continue to move forward. In my career and in what I wish to see in the world, this is a safe space for me. This is a space that I have created very intentionally to be a platform for folks of intersecting identities. And it's something that I'm very passionate about and want to see more of in the world. And I'm realizing that the experiences of the last couple of days are sort of just continuing to reiterate that for me. And sort of just solidify my personal life's mission to continue to create space like this that is intentional because oftentimes we don't get spaces like this those of us who have these intersecting identities don't get to be the ones we we can enter a space but oftentimes we're not we we can be on guard we're not we're kind of just waiting for the moment for a slip up to happen because we know it's going to happen. We know that harm is is sort of inevitable. And that's not to say that harm can be prevented, but it can absolutely be reduced when we are organically represented in a project in whatever capacity, you know, we're not just the ones who are on screen or on stage, but we're also the ones who are producing the thing. We're also the ones who are writing the thing. We're also the ones who are directing the thing. And we're the ones who are the crew people. We're the folks that we make up the environment that we wish to see. And my hope is that I can continue to do that in my line of work and get us to a place where it becomes more commonplace to see diversity across the board so that it's not so foreign and that people's cultural competency has increased to a level where we're not worried about our general safety and having our identities questioned or having our life exp- our life experiences questioned or our work experience questioned. So honestly, <laughs> as far as space making goes, this actually re-listening to this conversation that I had with Brian in preparation for releasing this episode, I think is actually came to me at a really great time because we kind of do talk about this a little bit in in our conversation about intentional space making and and you know what it how we as folks of color who also might be queer and or gender expansive in some way and just having all these intersecting identities creates a community creates a very powerful family that goes beyond blood so i really hope you all enjoy today's conversation and i'll be here right after the interview We'll be right back. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Mix of the Podcast. I'm very excited for today's guest. I have here with us today, Brian Joseph Lee, my dear, dear friend. Hello, Brian. Welcome. Hi, Joey. (laughs) Thank you so much for saying. Uh, I'm good. I'm really, really good. I am very happy that you said yes to being a part of this. I'm super appreciative of it. Um, How are you doing today? I mean, of course I said yes. (laughs)
1: <laughs> whatever you ask i'm there uh i'm doing good uh we are having this chat very close to my birthday and mm-hmm. um right after
0: yours so there's a lot of like leo virgo synergy right now <laughs> yes that's correct i i did yeah virgo season is among us probably at this point when the 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 episode is airing it'll be past the Le- virgo season mm-hmm. so but we are, we are relishing in that transitional energy right now. <laughs> I want everyone to know
1: that we are at the height of our powers right now. So <laughs> this is going to be a yeah, good conversation.
0: For sure. Tell us where you're
1: calling in from. I am calling in from Lenape Hoking on the island known as Manhattan. Currently in my apartment in Harlem. Though, I mean, you're catching me at a moment where the last six months have been so full of travel. Mm-hmm you ask me what city, what state, what country, I might have a different answer. So I'm very happy (laughs) to be home and anchored right now.
0: For sure. And we'll definitely get into all that travel, because I know a lot of it is in relationship to uh, all the work that you're doing. But before we we go there, I do want to like, kind of go back in the time machine a little bit, at least where our life paths cross to just give folks context to how we know each other. Um, because it's been about five and a half years, maybe going on five and a half years that when, since we first met. No, it's over five and a half years. I was interning at the Public Theater, and like the winter spring of 2018, and at the time you were you were on staff, and I remember it was um they 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 told me my like the team that I worked with told me how the Public had affinity spaces for. You know different identities within for folks who are on staff at the public and this was specifically there was specifically an lgbtq plus affinity space so i went to that meeting and i believe we were sitting like right across from each other it was a really big circle inside the library restaurant in the public and my recollection is that we were across from each other and then once the meeting actually broke you like it was like a beeline right to me and you introduced yourself and said hello <laughs> And then, like, the rest is history.
1: I love that story. That feels true to me because there were a lot of overlapping circles at the public. There were the LGBTQ spaces, mm-hmm. particularly that were, like, activated, you know, kind of in case of emergency, break open glass. Like, the queers would come together to do, like, you know, activ- activations for Pride Month or, like, around certain activities. Um, and then we also just you know, intersected around uh, black and brown spaces, BIPOC spaces, you know, being uh, young folks of a, of a particular politic, I want to say, you know, mm-hmm. I include myself in the definition of young folks. So thank you very much. But there was <laughs> I a...
0: said nothing. I said nothing. nothing.
1: I think your screen froze. <laughs> I think your screen froze. Yes. At the time, pre-pandemic, I was a I was a sprightly, young, uh, enthusiastic arts administrator. No, but there was a lot of organizing that happened, you know, before and then definitely during the pandemic. And uh, whether it was at the public or, you know, seeing each other, you know, operate in the industry in different spaces, uh, we've always been sort of in alignment and connected and championing each other from afar. So so that's the sort of origin story of our friendship, I'd like to say.
0: Absolutely. So with that context in mind, and we've definitely we've I know for I, I I would definitely say for sure that you've been one of the folks that I've been closest to since like I I came to the East Coast. Well, when I was on the East Coast for like the five years that I was uh, that I was there. Cool. Um And oddly enough, I feel like we've never actually collaborated in the sense of like working together on a particular project, we've like crossed paths or like I maybe have been have done something that you came to see or something and you've definitely were working on things that I came to see. But in, in the time that we've known each other, I don't think unless you can recall, I don't think there's been a moment where we've like collaborated to make something. Is that true? I think so. Wow. Um,
1: that feels <laughs> like that's that's my loss, you know, because you've worked with a lot of amazing people in your career. So maybe just count me as a fan.
0: <laughs> well, I feel like, I mean, it's still early on. We're still very young, as you say. So ah. there's, plenty, there's plenty of time for us to make it happen. But I digress. So I want to go a little bit further back into the time machine and give you some space to talk a little bit about where you come from, where you grew up. Who, you know, were the influences in your life, how art came to be, how you came to be in relationship with art and that, that sort of stuff.
1: Well, you know, where I come from, that's a really good question. My people are storytellers and creators and movement builders and activists and organizers. Um, and so I come from a lineage of folks who were breaking the rules as well as, fighting for freedom. Mm-hmm. I come from a military family, so both of my brothers are active duty military in the army and navy. My biological father was a police officer. I have family who have fought in many wars, who have supported, you know, in in many ways like fought for our country before the country recognized them. I also, mm-hmm. you know, my grandparents were active in the civil rights movement, particularly in Kentucky where my folks were born and raised. My grandmother was a community organizer who used to travel around different Black communities teaching nutrition to families. So like anyone who would get essentially like, you know, food stamps or mm-hmm. box goods from the government, she would teach them how to make the most nutritious meals for their family. She was really invested in childhood nutrition, um, education around healthcare, and did that for a long, long time. Both informally and then uh, under the auspices of the state of Kentucky of Kentucky, working with the governor. So my wow. folks have been like really involved in making sure that community is well taken care of, right? We Mm -hmm. fight for ourselves and we fight for others, even when that means breaking the rules. I got a lot of folks who did not come up traditional channels, folks who uh, (laughs) were outside of what we deem legal. And I also find that that's a part of my politic too. I mean, sometimes we need to do illegal shit and I think that's okay. So yeah, I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. Stayed there for the early part of my life until I had the opportunity to go to boarding school in New Hampshire. So I moved from... The black side of town in an integrated neighborhood in Nashville to an all white, like 96% white community um, for high school. And it was a very surreal experience because I don't necessarily think I had a fully formed sense of my own politic as particularly a black person, but definitely as a black queer person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I remember at that time really like reaching for whatever I could in order to feel a part of something. And for a Mm -hmm. long time, that was actually music. I was a jazz trumpeter for the first like 13 years of my life. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was uh, I was really involved in jazz. Uh, I was involved in a marching band and like there was a version of my life where I imagined touring. But my life sort of took a different turn when I went uh, from boarding school to college and fell out of love with jazz or just the way that it was the way that the music was sort of held at this liberal arts college wasn't really as rigorous as I would have wanted Mm -hmm. and I fell into theater I fell into performing arts Mm -hmm. probably again to find that kind of community and inclusion that I said I was looking for but of course that's really problematic to do in a place like uh, Hanover New Hampshire at Dartmouth College I'm going to name drop them Uh, (laughs) it's just you know it's it's a really it's a really you know lily white part of the world. And I think that the way they think about diversity or that they thought about diversity back then didn't really center particularly the um, black and brown students. We had to make up our own uh, spaces, make up our own opportunities. And Mm -hmm. so one of the first creative endeavors I got into at Dartmouth was actually around the time that August Wilson passed away. A friend of mine, we were sitting around together and sort of talking and she said, you know, August Wilson died and he has a long history at Dartmouth. There's no tribute planned. We should do something. Oh, wow. And at the time I'd only read one August Wilson play, but I knew he was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I said, yeah, we should honor August Wilson. We should honor him. He just passed. This is very recent. Let's do something. Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We ended up getting resources from the African-American Studies Department and from the Theater Department and from the Performing Arts Center and the Office of Multicultural Affairs to host a bit of a retrospective of August's work, monologues and, you know, words and stories and moments uh, throughout his career acted by the Black students on campus. And it was so, so tight, so put together, so creative, so, do it yourself. None of us really understood scope or scale. We just were. Mm-hmm. Ambitious. But that sort of unlocked for me, you know, the desire to know that if you really want to make something, you have to make it on your own. Yeah. Particularly in spaces that aren't designed or built for us. We have to be, you know, ambitious enough to create our own space. And so that's really how I got into storytelling and creativity is recognizing that no one else was going to hold the space for me you know and i needed to really find ways to to strike out on my own and to to find ways to make space for myself
0: and how was that was that like a one night event that that took place oh yeah like it was a one or two night thing but we were so invested in it <laughs> so invested amazing and and i assume it went it went it went wildly well It went well, you know, and I think that sort of struck
1: a chord with me. I should also say that my undergraduate degree was in international relations with a focus on Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies. So I actually spent two and a half of the five years that I spent in undergrad outside of the country in Central and South America. Mm -hmm. And that for me was also part of my learning curve, right? Which is that I was this like Southern born Black kid who would always thought that I wanted to be an ambassador. I always wanted to go into the foreign service and be an ambassador or be like a spy or something. <laughs> that was a very strong like experience. You know, I learned about myself by uh, finally traveling abroad in undergrad and I loved every moment of it. Traveling abroad for me opened my eyes to new experiences. Uh, my first uh, international trip was to the Dominican Republic where I helped start a um, a, a summer camp for kids in a local community there. And it's the first place in my life I ever went to where everybody thought that I was Dominican and everybody I saw looked like they were my family. They looked like (laughs) my cousins. No, seriously. It was like everybody was like of my skin tone, of my complexion. We had the same
2: features. Mm
1: -hmm. And yet I didn't speak the language. I didn't understand the culture. We didn't have the same sort of connection or history. But there was something deeper, right? Like a diasporic like Mm -hmm. history that we all shared. And so another part of my creative experience is that I've been searching for my entire adult life, I think, since that moment to find out what those connections are, right? Mm -hmm. Beyond just whether you grew up in Nashville or whether you grew up in the United States, whether you speak English predominantly, like I'm curious, particularly for black and brown folks around the world, what connects us and how that thread is actually
0: deeper than we sometimes recognize, right? Absolutely. And I see that reflected in the work that you're even doing now. But I, I know that there's there's still more, a little bit more to the journey mm-hmm. there, because you know, we're kind of like reaching the end of your undergrad experience and now kind of going into your young professional life. But we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that right after this break. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. We're here with this week's guest, Brian Joseph Lee, my dear, dear friend. And we were just finishing up talking about your experience coming up in the South and then making a shift into a very predominantly white space in New Hampshire and going to school at Dartmouth. And now I'd love for you to talk, talk about, you know, post your post-grad experience. And, you know, you 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 had shifted, you you shifted from doing jazz. And then you mentioned uh, studying international relations in undergrad and that you fell into theater as many of us do. And how did that start to unravel post-grad? It unraveled very quickly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, after graduating from undergrad, I immediately moved to Washington, Mm. D.C. I think I graduated on a Sunday and drove down to D.C. on a Monday and found a job waiting tables on a Tuesday. It was very quick, right? Oh. But I moved down there specifically because I got an internship with the uh, Woolly Mammoth Theater Company. In their Mm. literary department. And I remember, you know, as we're talking about this, I remember not being sure what I wanted to do after graduation. So I applied to all of these different like theater internships, partially because I thought that there would be a way for me to do that and keep my love of the arts outside of the university setting while still studying to take the Foreign Service exam. And mm-hmm. so I was super interested in moving to Washington D.C. because I felt like I could do both and still sort of keep that balance that I was used to. And you know, life happens, right? Like all of a sudden, <laughs> I I, uh, I studied it very intently, but I never took the foreign service exam. I got so caught up in being a creative and being a young person, just sort of living life. Particularly because I moved to Washington D.C. in the Obama years, right when he mm. was. 2008 2009. So there was a, a really beautiful renaissance that was happening in that space. I mean, the cultural scene was exploding.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Young, particularly black and brown creatives were moving into the space. It was also the first time in my life that I really could express and identify with my queerness. Mm-hmm. And so there was something about being, you know, a liberated, 20-something <laughs> hyper excited twenty something in these hyper. I was very excitable, <laughs> very like you know enthusiastic, which was so funny for me looking back on it. But I didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. There were no plans back then for me. There was just like no roadmap, no rule book. Mm-hmm. I knew I had to make enough money to pay the rent and mm-hmm. uh, continue to do things right that felt like they were true to me. And so my twenties were really marked by sort of circling something. I didn't know what it was, but I got mm-hmm. as much diverse experience as possible, particularly in the arts. So the thing I loved about working at Woolly is that I did pretty much every job that they would pay me to do in that <laughs> building. Sure. I was an intern, I associate dramaturg, I associate directed, I was a box office manager, I was their lead <laughs> bartender, I was a house manager. I was painting sets. Like, girl, you name it, I was there. I was like, are you paying me? Great, I'm going to be here. Yeah. And just putting it together, right? I had no idea what would actually be the sort of like galvanizing force there. And at the same time, I was directing shows in D.C., particularly on the fringe circuit. I was producing my own work Mm -hmm. and just really trying to cobble together as much experience as possible for whatever would come next, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I think after a couple of years, what I realized my superpower was, or one of my superpowers, was getting people as excited about the art as I was. Mm -hmm. I could really, you know, tell you why, if I love this show, or if I, you know, if you went to a theater once, I could tell you what you should see coming up. I could really point people to the art and invite them in in a way that felt really organic and authentic to me. And I remember I had a mentor who at the time was the director of marketing at Wooly. And she was like, you know, that's called marketing, right? And I was
2: like, <laughs> I have no idea what this is.
1: And so I uh, I found my way into marketing and I worked particularly in the vein of audience development and marketing for a variety of arts organizations within the DC and Baltimore area. So, you know, the second half of my twenties, the professionalization era was marked by getting my first real salary job at the age of 26 Mm-hmm. at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, where I was a marketing coordinator. And by the age of 29, I had skyrocketed through the ranks and then came back to the DC theater scene as a director of marketing for a Lort theater. So I was working at mm-hmm. Roundhouse Theater Company um, as a director of marketing for a nonprofit theater before the age of 30. Ooh. And that was really transformative. No, it was it was really cool, but it was also transformative for me because I yeah again, was circling something. I didn't know what it was, but I knew that audiences were a part of it. I knew the community was a part of it. I knew that I wanted to get people as thrilled about particularly like theater as as I was in the arts. I also knew that my colleagues in the city, my colleagues around the country doing things a very specific way right and I can Mm -hmm. do this because I would meet them at these annual conferences and I would go and I would be the youngest person in the room I'd be one of the few people of color often I was the only black person often I was the only black man in the room Mm. and so holding a lot of that complexity of like my experience let me know that whatever I was doing or whatever I was seeing was pretty unique it was a path that I was walking on my own and so I didn't really have like ways to sort of you know model that I just sort of like went as as far as I could to build community there.
0: Amazing. And I know that following your experience um, working at Roundhouse as the director of marketing, what then led you to New York City? Because that's obviously where we met. So there was a transition that happened there. So what what prompted that? Yeah, I mean, something happened in the
1: fall of 2016 that completely changed the outlook of this country. I don't know what that could be. (laughs) <laughs> um, I, know, well, I know exactly what it was for me, which is that we were having very similar conversations around like community and equity and diversity and inclusion. You know, these sort of recurring themes in our field that felt really, really disingenuous If you looked at the political climate that we were entering into, particularly in and mm-hmm. 2016 and to experience that disconnect in a place like Washington, D.C., which, again, D.C. is a weird place. D.C. is a very... <laughs> Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's very unique political like because we are all political animals in the sense that we're like very aware of what's happening. But there's also no taxation about representation. Like my entire 20s, I never voted for a federal office besides president. You know, Mm -hmm. I had mayor. I had a mayor that I would vote for. We had a a non-voting congressperson who was sort of de facto getting the job. And then I would vote in the presidential elections whenever, you know, I wanted to add my vote to a really blue part of the country. So political activation in Washington, D.C. was embodied differently. We marched, we organized, we led national, you know, movements, or we Mm -hmm. were connected to organizing bodies that would work locally and nationally and internationally, globally. And so my political awareness was very broad-based. I think that when Trump was elected, I had a crisis of faith in the American theater, like many of us did. Mm -hmm. because a lot of my work was going to the service of upholding systems and practices that didn't really benefit my community. And I found myself sometimes making that rationale on the back end saying, oh, this show that I had never heard of or seen or programmed that is not relevant to us, you should still come and see it because, right? I was sick of that, man. I just really, I couldn't get get past it. Um, And I wanted my work to matter. I wanted my work to mean something. Mm -hmm. And I of my work to exist in a community of people that look like me and people that were fighting for the things that I wanted to fight for. And around that time, I met an amazing person who was both like a mentor and an inspiration, Stephanie Ibarra, who at a conference was like, you know, I'm hiring for a position. You should probably apply. And it was an artistic producing position at the public theater. And I had no idea what that was, but I was like, if you're there, I'm going to be there. (laughs) Um, but of course, blindly, I was like, I didn't know she's going to hire me. And she did. So so, thank you, Stephanie, to this day, my forever boss. Really, you know, six years ago, transformed the sort of arc of my life. And so I said, okay, I'm going to move to New York. Took a hard right from marketing. And I became a part of the artistic staff at The Public, which is where we met.
0: Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I love your reaction to, to. Being told um, artistic producer and and asking like what does that mean? Because I feel like I feel like that's everyone's question when you say anything in relationship to I'm a producer or I'm an artistic producer or whatever sort of thing. And my I'm to this day because I can obviously consider myself a producer, and my family still doesn't understand. I've explained. I've tried. I've attempted to explain to my family what it is that I do, but also even now in this current state of my life that is evolving. <laughs> <laughs> so it gets even harder to explain to them what i do but i just tell them you know what i'm living a comfortable life and i'm making enough money to make that happen so <laughs> yeah for the longest time my mother thought i was still an actor
1: like i've never been on i haven't been on anybody's stage Ma. what are you talking about so i think that there's there's a lot of like flexibility in the term producer that we only know because we've been on a couple of different sides of it now like you and i have been yeah line producers, creative producers, executive producers, like all these different, you know, titles. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the thread from everything that I've done was building the support to tell the stories that um, I knew wanted to be told. And whether that's me telling them directly as an artist and creative, whether it's building the community and support to like hear and see the the
0: story, Mm -hmm.
1: or as a producer sort of building the container for the best possible art to happen. And it, it feels like that's always a part of my journey.
0: Absolutely. And that also leads into another shift, a global shift <laughs> that really had an effect on the status of where you sat as a producer. And I definitely want to get into a little bit more about that. But We're going to take a quick break. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Again, we're here with our guest, Brian Joseph Lee. And we're at the at sort of, I guess what I'll call the inflection point. This is going to be a running thread through everyone's stories because the entire world was affected by the COVID-19 pandemic of 2020. And being someone, being folks that work in life performing arts, that really was an incredibly difficult time in just trying to figure out what we were doing. And I think I'll speak For me, as I should only speak for me, I definitely was questioning the meaning of like what it is I even do as a producer, as an artist, as a creative, and how it was it going to contribute to how we move forward through the chaos of what we all experienced, those of us who are still here. And during that time, I was in Connecticut at that point, and you were still in New York, two hours away, but still like so far away, given that we couldn't. We, we couldn't easily access each other or see each other in person, given the circumstances. But obviously for you, a lot was going on as well and trying to like carve something out. And then in 2021, is it is that correct? You launch Center Arts. Yeah. Tell me more about about what led up to what was all that planning looking like? And then, you know, talk about like now what you're what you're doing with Center Arts. It's so funny, Joey, even talking
1: this through a few, I'm like, oh yeah, these major like global events happen and my life takes a huge turn. First president, (laughs) bam, like you're, you know, out there. Trump gets elected, bam, left turn. Pandemic, bam, another left turn. I'm excited to see what happens next. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in 2021, you know, I stepped away from the public theater with a lot of question marks. Obviously, it was the height of the pandemic, and I was unsure about my relationship to institutions, my relationship to my own work, my own personal mission, and how I could best be of service. And if I'm really honest and truthful with myself, I know that I have many different skill sets that sometimes seem incompatible in just one title or one role or one definition. Yeah. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's true for a lot of us that we are multi-hyphenates, but we also are beautifully complex. We t- contain multitudes. I have a mm-hmm. lot of different superpowers. I realized very quickly that if I wanted to use all of my superpowers towards the most good, I'd have to create the space for that to happen. And that would probably look different than any other space I've created in any other space I've ever worked. Mm-hmm. I realized very quickly that that meant starting my own company. So I uh, started Center Arts. Center Arts is a creative studio that centers artists, activists, and communities of color. And we do that in a couple of different ways. Primarily, we're a consulting firm that mm. works to support arts organizations on their journeys, whether that's to build audiences or to increase equity within their companies or to plan strategically for the future in a time of uncertainty. I've worked with a lot of clients around the country and now around the world, helping them build relevance, build this momentum to think deeply about what they're doing and Mm -hmm. to idolize their efforts, particularly when it comes to the things that we're most interested in, the things we're talking about right now, which is maintaining relevance within our communities, you know, being a safe space for people of color, programming that really speaks to us and it is of, by, and for the people. So a lot of that strategic consulting work was born out of, you know, my diverse history. I was a marketing director for a long time. I was also a creative producer. And so I knew the relationship between theory and practice, between the idea of building audiences and the idea of creating art. There are a few of us who sit within that space between the business and the art and can hold the two in dialogue and intention and in sovereignty so that one yeah. doesn't stare overtake the other. I realize that that skill is incredibly useful for how I approach my consulting practice because I typically work with organizations that have really great ideas organizations that know intrinsically that they want to move forward, but taking those ideas and actually putting them into practice, embodying those ideas, you know, making them into some kind of either like structure or policy or framework. That's where the rub is. And so a lot of my activity in supporting arts organizations is really helping them not only think differently, but to work differently. So that's one side of what Center Arts does. The other side is that we produce And Mm -hmm. so uh, from 2021, you know, I've taken my love supporting creatives and mostly the creatives I support are multidisciplinary as well. They are artists, they are storytellers, they are thinkers, they are doers, mostly Black, BIPOC, queer, trans folks Mm -hmm. telling stories in different ways. I find opportunities to support them through the platform that is created by my company. And so one of the things that makes my business model pretty unique is that I tithe. I self-tithe, which Mm -hmm. is kind of a a, a weird religious model, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But for the...
0: uh, A a reclamative
1: model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is is subversive, right? But it really is (laughs) like making sure that I earmark a certain amount of resources for my consulting practice to be put into a creative development fund. Mm -hmm. And so uh, any contract that I take on percentage of that contract goes directly to supporting artists and that can look like you know executive producing a web series it can look like supporting a gallery exhibition for an artist that I really care about uh, about or pur- purchasing their work I've hosted workshops and readings I have produced off Broadway you know and I've done that mm-hmm. through my own means and through relationships with other producers and organizations and 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 programs but really I think the relationship between the consulting and the producing and my company stems from this desire to merge the theory and the practice, right? That we can't live mm-hmm. on one side of the fence, but really in order to be better at both, we have to practice both. And so mm-hmm. often that means that I'm switching my attention you know, or thinking about different ways to sort of have the two sides speak to the greater whole. But what makes sense to me, at least in this career that I've created for myself, is that I'm very fulfilled being in right relationship with institutions mm-hmm. and right now that right relationship is like at a distance you know <laughs> it's yeah. being like i can love you you know what does is, what is, uh, Prentice Hemphill say a, a boundary is the distance that oh, i can yes. love and love you simultaneously My boundary is that I'm able to work within nonprofit institutions as long as I have the sovereignty to be seen as a professional and as an expert in my field. And that that relationship is very specific, very time bound. Um, I'm able to get in, offer my expertise and then get out and make sure that they're doing the best work possible. Right. So that to me feels like truthfully a really amazing outcome of a chaotic period in the pandemic, you know, one that forced us all to reimagine and change and shift, I was able to evolve into a new form of my practice that I think is really well suited for my life.
0: Absolutely. And the way that you're describing this approach to producing this approach to art making, storytelling, space making, and supporting community probably probably sounds might it might sound new to someone who's listening but I but I you and I both know and I want to like make it very clear that this is you know this is just the way that a lot of folks have have operated, you know, having very limited resources and being creative with those resources and create and making an impact. And though it might not have the same impact as an institution that has a 40 million dollar annual budget, it is an impact that's that's sort of priceless, I think, at the end of the day. And that's something I think, you know, and 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 I think you might agree with me is also rooted in the fact that we have these intersecting identities. We have these cultural backgrounds that are very particular and also our the our, our the way that we view family is also just just different than than to the traditional sense right like you know you're someone that I consider chosen family like someone that I can rely on that's someone that I can call in for you know just to talk or you know if I'm looking for work or if I I'm looking for someone for someone for a particular project like that sort of thing, right? It's it's that 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 connectivity that that is just unique and sort of innate to what I to our what I believe it is connected to our identities. So what is curious to me in this particular moment is, uh, and I'm sure you've seen and read these as well, a lot of uh, uh, op eds and think pieces about, you know, how doomed theater is, you know, this sort of like destructive revelation style of talk around the American theater, which, which I am just calling white noise. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious to hear from you, you know I I don't want this to be like a oh Brian, what do we do to save the American theater? I just want I I think what I want to hear from you, Brian, is how do we reinforce what you're already doing? How do we reinforce the work that you and so many others are already doing because it's possible to create sustainability and to like create a thriving arts and culture field. but for yeah. some reason, a lot of the gatekeepers just don't seem to, understand or even want to get on board if they do understand. I
1: mean, can we start there and just reiterate that we are part of a continuum? We are part of a long history of movement builders and of creators and community organizers in the arts who have leaned on our practices of building family Mm -hmm. uh, to sustain a world in crisis. Um, So that is not new to black folks. To Latine folks, to BIPOC folks, to queer folks, to trans folks, Mm -hmm. we have had to survive through moments of immense upheaval in the course of our lives. It's so interesting to me when I move into consulting practice, I realize just how rare that skill set is. If you're not a part of our community, to us, it's Mm -hmm. like we know what mutual aid is. We know what cooperative economics are. We -hmm. know how to lean on our siblings. We know how to like look to our right and our left and move up as one. We know that kind of practice of community organizing is so essential um, because that's what makes our art truthful. It's what makes it real. It's what keeps us accountable to the communities that we hold ourselves within. So I think that that technology is something that is ours Mm -hmm. and is a technology that helps us Uh, if applied to the wider field, it could actually help address a lot of these these issues, right? So step one is recognizing that that technology exists. I think that there is, speaking of continuum, you know, there are people right now who are answering and, and sort of activating that question that you just asked, right? Annalisa Diaz, a really fantastic creator, dramaturg. She currently works at the Baltimore center stage, uh, working towards, you know, supporting artistic partnerships and innovation. Mm-hmm. And she had this really amazing article about rethinking the ecology of the American theater as one that is sort of like infused with sort of bioluminescence, this idea that maybe we do need to not fail, but maybe we do need to disintegrate, dissolve.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: maybe, we, maybe, you know, we have to compost a bit so that from the ruin something else can grow, right? Yeah. I think a lot about that. I think a lot about the fact that, you know, within the long span of whether it's black theater or Latina theater or nonprofit American theater, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't the first crisis we've been through. You know what I mean? Think about mm-hmm. Shakespeare, 400 plus years, you know how many apocalypses. The works of Shakespeare have seen and survived mm-hmm. and they're still around like cockroaches, man. Like, it's just, it's, it's so Adrian Marie Brown talks a lot about the apocalypse, right? And you mm-hmm. and I are both sort of in the language of emergent strategy. And we've talked a lot about this through the course of our friendship. Mm-hmm. But one of the concepts that I find most important is to remember that utopias and dystopias can exist simultaneously, Mm -hmm. they often do throughout history, Mm -hmm. the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, right exist at the same time on top of each other, all the time, and Mm -hmm. what you experience in terms of utopia or dystopia is completely dependent on your level of privilege. So Mm -hmm. if you are someone who can move with relative privilege through the systems of oppression, you won't experience the kind of destruction and apocalypse that others might right those frontline communities those mm-hmm. most vulnerable those at the intersection like us and so it's really important to remember that bit of like rational thinking as we're going through this moment of apocalypse right the articles that exist in American theater and our upheaval sure right there's a mm-hmm. there's a very real business conversation to be had about the solvency of our industry and it is hard and I'm seeing that affect a lot of people spiritually, I don't feel as worried. I think that that the art will survive. I think that the organizations that house the art will need to restructure,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: and some may go away, particularly in the middle. I think that for those of us who have dealt with oppression or scarcity, this is nothing new, and we're gonna find ways to do what we do mm-hmm. outside <laughs> of these traditional structures that maybe weren't built for us in the first place, that maybe made us a little bit comfortable, right? And I don't mean to say anything that disregards the really, really hard fought efforts of every leader who has tried to keep the doors open Mm -hmm. of their particular company during the last three years. I know how hard it has been to fight for jobs. I know how hard it has been to advocate for people. I know how hard it has been to produce the art, right? So let Mm -hmm. us just uplift all of that labor and say that that is important. What also is true is that what I want to see for my people is that if it ends tomorrow, if the entire rug is pulled out, what are we doing next? You know, what's on the other side of this portal? What are we Mm -hmm. creating for ourselves that we own? And what would it look like if you took a couple of years of your own labor and instead of putting it in that institution in a way that like extracts it from you, you find a way to pour it into yourself or pour it into your community or, um, capitalize it differently in a way that supports you long-term, that builds legacy and wealth in a different way? All those are very big questions, right? And I'm saying that as someone who's done that path, like I Mm -hmm. went from within institution in a particular degree of of safety and security to being like right on the outside and having to make something new and then realizing that that's brave space that I really enjoyed and then creating new things again and creating new things. So I definitely believe that this isn't the first or the last apocalypse we're ever going (laughs) to (laughs) face. We have to be okay with that. We have to at least like not be surprised, girl, come on. Like it's, it's (laughs)
0: yeah. The last thing I want to hear is, Oh my God, how could this, are you serious? (laughs) I think it's interesting because even, even in like the, the, the destruction or the doomsday esqueness of the word apocalypse or like what what comes up for you when when the word apocalypse is is used, it's still an implication that there is sort of like a changing that's happening, right? I mean, even if even if you're someone like that practices tarot, and you know, and you understand the meaning of the death card, it's not necessarily like doom is coming. It's more about just like there's a going to be a rebirth, something is sunsetting. And then on the other side of that, there is a sunrise, right? There is newness, there is rebirth, there is growth, there is change, and that that is inherent. And it's okay. It's not easy. <laughs> (laughs) i don't think anyone ever said it was going to be yeah i Um,
1: don't know if it's like terribly i don't know if it's terribly okay like i also think that you know we have an assignment to save as many of us as possible mm -hmm. politically that's the other thing that like history will teach us as black and brown folks organizing is like (laughs) the revolution will not be televised but when it goes down Mm -hmm. like who who is in your squad you know what i mean like What Mm -hmm. practices and what tools are you using? What technology will you implement to save as many of us as possible? I tend to think that it is very useful right now to tell stories. I think that art, I think that storytelling, I think that modeling new ways of thinking on a broad scale can help us imagine future possibilities so that more people can have those seeds to think differently about how to save other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that inspiration is incredibly important and viable We're talking right now, shortly after the Maui fires Mm -hmm. a couple of days after a major earthquake and and hurricane in Southern California, you Mm -hmm. know, on the tail end of like record setting droughts, like our world is changing because of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things we have to reckon with is how do we survive that in a really like visceral way? How do we survive that tangibly? And I think that's actually our assignment. I want to see more queer, trans, Black, and BIPOC artists thinking very specifically about saving as many of us as possible, mm-hmm. fighting for us, fighting for our safety, advocating for us, marching for us, right? That's the power of the kind of artistic community we're, we're creating or that we're a part of or we're in relationship with is that there's an assignment here that's greater than just entertainment. It's literally like survival. And I don't think that that's hyperbole given where we are, what we've survived, what we've seen over the last like three years, literally. Yeah. Millions of people have died. You know what I mean? This is not an abstraction to think that the work we're doing has an ultimate goal to uh, help us survive a world that is rapidly
0: deteriorating. And I think that that's also part of this. Absolutely.
1: Oh, Brian,
0: (laughs) I always I always enjoy our conversations. And this is this is no different. I also recognize that you've gifted me more time than I've asked for.
1: Oh, I don't know how you're going to cut this down into a podcast. (laughs) Just delete the (laughs) like. middle section talk about (laughs) elementary school and then be like the public theater
0: (laughs) no 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 it's all gonna go in there it's all gonna go in there it'll be and it'll be seamless thank you so so much for saying yes and thank you for joining me this evening i really appreciate it oh thank you friend and we'll be right back everyone stay tuned hi everyone welcome back we've just completed our conversation with brian joseph lee my incredible friend and i i am still just reeling from this conversation because this idea that we are coexisting in dystopia and utopia for some you know some folks are experiencing utopia some folks are experiencing dystopia simultaneously i don't know that i've had someone word it in that way to me before directly. But the more I pondered on it, the more I realized like going back to high school reading Tale of Two Cities, the opening line is it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And I kind of feel like we that can very much be said for nowadays. Again, the idea of intentionally making space for us to thrive in is not new. It is something that we have been doing for ages and ages with the very limited resources but you know the cooperative economics the mutual aid this is what it looks like to be in community with people who are not just the family that has been given to you when you enter upon this earth this is what i mean when i when i say that i love being queer very specifically because the way that i have been able to form family with folks from all around the world and and just my short life so far is such is such a blessing and is such an honor. And it's something that I think I've always craved, even as I was growing up, just being able to see that that was possible really, really had an impact on me. And I knew that that was going to be part of my life. One thing that I really want to highlight from the conversation, because we didn't really spend a whole lot of time discussing it, and I really want to make sure that folks know about this, is Brian is the founder of TheUrbanX.org, which is an international arts residency program that connects Black and brown creatives across the diaspora. They harness the power of urban culture and the arts to build bridges across borders, share knowledge and resources in community, and empower creators of the global majority. And we will have the website for for this linked in the description. So you can learn more and learn more about the artists that are being represented through the urban X right now. Actually, uh, the day that this episode is released on Friday, October 6th, UrbanX.org is going to be presenting, presenting one of their projects at high arts they're in, They've been in residency at high arts in New York City, I believe for the last two weeks and they're presenting. So I'm wishing them all a great shows break all the legs. I'm sure it's going to be amazing, but if you're in New York City and you're listening to this and it's the morning of Friday October 6th, then go to High Arts and, <laughs> and check it out, RSVP and and just be able to experience this work live and in person. Yeah, you know, folks, again, I also just want to reiterate that this podcast, this show was made very intentionally to uplift and celebrate the work and lives of people of the global majority, folks who identify as Black, Indigenous, people of color. Yeah, I just, I I very much feel the need to reiterate that and be very clear that that is what this show is about and why this space exists and why I've poured, you know, a lot of my time and love and finances into making this happen. So I hope that people are hearing that. I hope that people are respecting that. And I'm also really excited to continue to like build this community with you all. And I, you know, we're not even halfway through yet after next after next week, we'll be halfway through with with the first season. But you know, the work will continue beyond that. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing seeing how this grows. And uh, I hope you continue to follow along with me on this journey. I'm so appreciative of everyone that that has reached out already uh, personally and and continues to follow the show and 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 yeah, I'm just I'm just grateful for you. So thank you so much for listening this week and uh, make sure to tune in next week. Till then. Thank you for listening to the Mix It Up podcast. Feel free to support us further by commenting, rating or subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You may also follow us on Instagram at at Mix It Up pod. Mix It Up is produced, hosted and edited by Joey Reyes. If you enjoy our music, please check out DJ and new media artist Professor Rex on Instagram at at professor underscore Rex. That's W-R-E-C-K-S. Until next time, remember to mix it up.